Praise God. Good morning. Still morning, yes. <laughs> and let me wish everyone a very Merry Christmas as we get into the Christmas season, um, particularly here at CCPV. We are officially beginning an Advent season. Now, for those of you who follow the Advent calendar, you are well aware that we're two weeks behind. Um, the traditional Advent calendar began two weeks ago. And that's okay. Uh, there's no official Advent season in the Bible. It's uh, by tradition, not by prescription. Um, but I'm going to argue that we really began Christmas two weeks ago. I really believe that Daniel's last two sermons were Christmas sermons. Um, because ultimately, Christmas is about the Advent. And that's what we're talking about today. And as many of you know, Advent simply means either coming or arrival. And that is what Daniel has been focused on. Now, he was primarily focused on the second coming at the end of Thessalonians. But in all reality, traditionally, the Christmas season, the Advent, celebrated both Christians around the world for, you know, uh, decades and for um, millennials, you know, 2,000 years now, have celebrated the first coming as pointing to the second coming. And we're going to see that again today the reality that the two are interjoined with one another. Um, and so when we talk about Jesus' second coming, that Advent is as much a Christmas message as it is um, a teaching about the return of Jesus. And Daniel last week summed up perfectly what I believe is the truest lesson of Advent, when we celebrate Advent. He said this, he said, The Advent of Christ should engender an eager expectation an eager expectation. And I loved that saying and honestly built this sermon around that idea of engendering in us an eager expectation because I believe that that eager expectation should play itself out not just in waiting for the Christ to come back, but an eager expectation in our every day that God is just going to show up, that we are trusting in His goodness to be God. Because at the end of the day, God is good. Does anybody here believe that? God is good. All the time. God is good. Right? And we should be living out of that place of God's goodness. Our attitude should really be, come on, God, surprise me. I'm okay with whatever may come because I am in your grasp. And that's what we're going to see today. Um, this knowledge of God's goodness should cause us to do where Pastor Daniel ended last week in Thessalonians 5.16 with the command to rejoice always, right? And if you remember last week, the teaching was that we don't rejoice always because of the circumstances. We rejoice in the circumstances. Well, what allows us to rejoice? The knowledge of the goodness of our God. But God also had a backup plan. Does anybody remember verse 17? Verse 16 commanded us to rejoice always. Verse 17... Pray without ceasing, because God knows, right? It's not always easy to rejoice. And when it's not easy to rejoice, we need to be on our knees. We need to be connecting to this God so he can remind us of his goodness, and he can encourage us, and that's what we're going to be also examining today. And we're going to see what it looks like to live out a life of eager expectation in the focus of our scripture this morning. And we're going to see this through the person of Mary. I was just sharing with someone that, you know, a lot of Protestant churches in response to Catholicism, they don't like to talk about Mary. 
But the Bible talks about Mary, and we should talk about Mary, <laughs> because Mary is a wonderful example. She was chosen for a reason. She has a wonderful heart that should become an example to us of how we live in this eager expectation of God's goodness. So let's look at Luke 1. We're going to be reading from uh, verses 26 to 38. So beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful example of this wonderful heart that we see in Mary. But Father, thank you most of all for the message being delivered to Mary that a Savior was to be born who would come to this earth to reign over it and also to take away our sins and to be our salvation, as his very name declares, Jesus, salvation. Father, may we receive your message today. May we receive your salvation. And then may we learn from the example of Mary to live in the expectation that comes from your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, one of the things I love about uh, reading any event as the Bible recounts events, and I purposely call them events, I'm tempted to call them a story, but so often when you use that word story, there's a hint of fiction to it. And that's not what we find in the Bible, right? And the details that the Bible includes within the recounting of these events is meant to give us comfort around the truth of these stories. C.S. Lewis actually referenced this um, and he said that these details ultimately is what led him to come to trust in Christ. Because he says, the, you know, if you didn't know he was a background, he was an expert in myths. And he said he famously called the stories of Jesus the true myth. Here's a quote from him. He says, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, because myths were intended to teach lessons um, and to give us, you know, ways to, better ways to live. But he said, but with this tremendous difference, that it really happened. <laughs> and that is what distinguishes the Bible from all other myths, if you would. So it's important to remind ourselves of the truth of these events, because we have to admit that they're fantastical, right? A story about an angel coming to talk to a little girl in some little weird town um, can be a little bit fantastical. 
And so these little details are there to remind us that they are true. And so this angel is visiting this young woman named Mary and is prophesying to her that she's going to have a son, even though she's not married and has never been with a man. Um, and so we can't separate the miracle of Christmas from the truth of Christmas, because if this was just a nice tale, then it's all meaningless. If it was just a good story meant to teach us some morals or something of that nature, then it's worthless. It is the truth of these things that matter. Um, and so we're told here that it's been six months since Mary's relative Elizabeth had become pregnant, and God sends an angel, fantastical already, and we are, but... We are given the angel's name, a nice little detail, right? That God names his angels. These aren't just servants of his. They're, pe- they're creatures that he's created, he loves and cares for. And this angel's name is Gabriel. Uh, and so we get to know the angel. And there's a reality tied to this. They tell us that this Gabriel was sent to a particular town, Nazareth, in the city of Galilee. They identify the woman. They identify who she was going to be married to, that she was betrothed to marry this man named Joseph, right? And this story would have been written at a time where you could go to Nazareth and say, hey, do you guys know Mary and Joseph? Yeah, yeah, we knew them. Did they have this baby named Jesus? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you could rely on the truth of the story that is being told Um, And so, real people, real names in a real place, because it's true. We're told that Joseph is of the house of David, and so he would have been of the lineage of David. Small details that give us context, and it's going to be important to the story of salvation, right? Because this ordinary young woman from a nothing town who is preparing for what would have been probably the most important event in her life, she's getting married, that would have been a big deal, um is about to have her world turned upside down (laughs) because an angel is going to visit her and is going to give her a prophecy of what is about to happen to her. And so it's worth taking a moment to understand what prophecy is. Why is God sending a messenger to talk to this woman? Why has God been giving the nation of Israel these messages? And even before Israel was a nation, God had been prophesying about the coming of this Messiah And he's going to deliver the same message. Why does God do that? What is the purpose behind prophecy? And we talked a lot about prophecy uh, last two weeks as we talked about the further coming of Jesus. Now, part of that is if you were about to become impregnated by the Holy Spirit, you might want some warning. (laughs) And God is being, giving her a warning, right? But that's not the only purpose. The Bible tells us that there's greater purpose behind um, the prophetic word that God gives us. And we shouldn't take for granted uh, the desire of God to share these things with his children often before they happen. And so last week, Daniel read from Thessalonians that we should not despise prophecy because it's easy to read the word of God and hear what is coming. Sometimes the foretelling was of bad news, but we were told not to despise prophecy, but rather to test every spirit. So what is prophecy? Well, We know from 1 Corinthians 12 that a prophecy is one of the gifts of the Spirit, right? We know from the Old Testament that this was a gift that wasn't new to the New Testament, that much of the Bible was written by prophets, and much of the Bible was written about prophets. And between sermons, uh, Pastor Rob was sharing me that in his study, he's going through the book of Isaiah, he's learned that it's also, where does prophecy come from? It comes from being close to God. That prophets were people that were so in tuned with God's nature and character that God 
was not able, only able to speak through them, but that they could see where things were leading and going because of that connection that they had with God. And so that gave me encouragement, right? Because it's a gift of the Spirit. And if you want that gift, what can we do? Draw closer to God, <laughs> right? We can seek, the Bible tells us to seek the greater gifts. And where does it come from? In drawing a nearness to God. We are told in 2 Peter that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we know that prophecy is a special revelation of the Word of God that is directly from the Lord. And so it distinguishes from other kinds of teaching, right? We can preach, we can teach, but a prophetic word is something different. It's something that's a special revelation that comes directly from God. Um, it's a communication from Him. And then, lastly, we are told in 1 Corinthians 14, the purpose of prophecy. We all know that prophecies are often a prediction of what's going to come, but that's not the primary purpose. We are told in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, he who prophesies speaks to men for their edification, their encouragement, and their comfort. That is the heart of our God, is to tell us things that will edify us encourage us, and comfort us. And that is the primary purpose of um, prophecy. And so when properly read or interpreted, all prophecy is going to have this effect. And it should produce, right, in us, what should it produce in us if we've been edified, encouraged, and comforted? An eager expectation. An eager expectation for tomorrow. And that's what I loved about that statement. Because the Word of God, whether it's about Jesus' coming or nothing else, when it reveals to us the love and care of our God should engender in us an eager expectation for whatever may come tomorrow. And what is more edifying, encouraging, and comforting than the good news itself? That God is sending to us a Savior, right? The first time, to save us from our sins, and then in the future, to bring us home that we might dwell eternally with him. That is edifying, encouraging, and comforting. And surely this should cause an eager expectation when received in the right heart. So prophecy is actually a tool used by God to cultivate in his children as he sanctifies us this eager expectation. And that's what the word of God should be doing in our lives as we read it, study it, as we learn from it. It should be cultivating in us an eager expectation for tomorrow, whatever it may bring, that we can rely on God's goodness. So let's look a little further into how this played out in the life of this young woman. And one of the things we learn most from Mary is about her heart. And it's an example that we can take. In verse 28, listen to this. It says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So as this event unfolds, we're beginning to get this picture of who Mary is, that she hears this greeting and she's troubled by it, as many of us might be, that we were favored of the Lord, right? But the Bible gives us this wonderful little fact about her reaction to the message that has been given to her. We learn from what is going on in her mind and how she deals with it, how we should deal when we come across scripture that may trouble us. Because what is Mary's reaction to being troubled? She doesn't start babbling incoherently. She doesn't run away from the angel. She sits in silence and waits for the rest of his message. 
She looks deeper into the things of God. She wants to hear what God has for her. And that should be our reaction to God's word, right? And it shouldn't be taken for granted that this was her reaction because we have lots of counterexamples in the Bible. We see that when Jacob saw an angel, what did he do? He wrestled with the angel of the Lord because he was not receptive to the message. We uh, have other examples um, of Peter. Every time Peter opened his mouth was usually a little too quick (laughs) when he needed to slow down and hear what Jesus was saying. And so it's not a given that someone's reaction to the word will be to quietly allow the spirit to continue to speak. And so Mary here should be the example for us how we receive the word of God. She is quietly seeking a deeper understanding to what is going on even when she's troubled. And the angel goes on in verse 30. says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now those are some pretty powerful words for a young teenage woman to hear. Um, And so if she wasn't troubled before, I got to imagine there's more stirring in her at this point. And there's so much to this prophecy, but the reality of it is, is none of it's new. As I said, God had been prophesying with regards to the coming Messiah for years. And so it isn't new, but in this message to Mary are some clarifying truths that we should appreciate. Because even though uh, uh, the Messiah had been prophesied, there had been, and there continues to be, a lot of controversy around some of these prophecies. And in these scriptures, God provides not only clarity, but a testimony to all of us as to what he truly intended. First is this question around whether or not the person who birthed the Messiah would be a virgin. Right? A lot of uh, teaching goes about saying that, well... The word for virgin in Hebrew could also be young woman, and it really doesn't have to be uh, a virgin. But here, three times we are told that she was a virgin. And the last time is her herself saying, hey, by the way, but I'm a virgin. (laughs) How is this going to happen? And so there's no ambiguity in this scripture that our Savior was to be born of a virgin. Um, And that's what the understanding of the early church is. And we're going to come back to this shortly as to why this is important. Because this prophecy is going to explain to us the first prophecy that was made in the Bible about the coming Messiah. But more important, notice how this prophecy to Mary shatters any notion that the early disciples did not think of Jesus as God. Because before Jesus was even born, when the angel comes to talk to Mary, what are we told? We are told that he would be called um, the Son of the Most High. And then in verse 35, we are told that the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And in verse 33, we are told that this Jesus uh, personally will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Well, mere men don't reign forever. (laughs) Mere men, like David, have an end to their throne, and their legacy is usually through their sons or other people. And so there's absolutely no misunderstanding to the reality that this Savior that was to be born was God who was coming through a woman to be in human flesh. And so the importance of understanding that Jesus was fully God and also fully man. And, you know, a lot of cults are built 
on the idea of, well, who is Jesus? That he wasn't God, that he was a separate God, or that he was a God, became a God like we can become gods. And all these weird teachings, when the scripture is very, very clear about both the deity and the humanity of our Savior. Finally, the angel's words bear testimony to what I said, the fulfillment of the very first prophecy in the Bible. And I want to take a look at that prophecy because I think it's very enlightening as to understanding why it was so important that this Jesus be born of a virgin. So we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 3. Um, right after the fall, God gives us a prophecy. But Genesis 3.15, God is talking to the serpent and he says this. And I'm going to read this from the New King James because uh, other versions, and it may even be this one. Yeah, see this one says offspring. Um, the NASB says descendants, but the new King James gets it right in the Hebrew. The Hebrew says this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, any high school biology student knows that the woman carries an egg <laughs> and that the seed comes from the man. Um, and so what is the Bible talking about? Well, Luke 1 is telling us. It's telling us that the seed of the woman is because the Holy Spirit is going to be implant this life into Mary. That there is no man involved. There is no seed of man in the birthing of the Messiah. And this is critical to the story of our salvation because Romans 5 tells us that therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. All have sinned because we all inherit the sinful nature of our father, Adam. It's almost as if Adam's DNA carried the seed of sin. But Jesus' DNA did not have that because he was not born from the seed of man. He was born of the Holy Spirit and of the seed of woman. And so Jesus is referred to as the second Adam because like Adam, his life came not through natural means, but through the breath of the Spirit. Just like Adam, God himself birthed this man as if what God was doing was creating a new line of humanity, which is what he's doing. <laughs> we are made new creatures and new creation in Christ Jesus when we are adopted into this new lineage that God creates through the second Adam and the new line of man. God was starting over through Jesus, and that's literally what he is doing. And that is the opportunity that is provided to all of us if we accept the free gift that is salvation. When we recognize Jesus as Lord, repent of our sins, acknowledge his death and his resurrection as payment for our sins, we get to leave the lineage of the old Adam and we are adopted into God's new family line which began with Jesus. That is the good news. <laughs> and that is what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, there's also something implicit in the prophecy that Mary was given that we could not have known at the time. Mary would not have known this. But in hindsight, it's clear to us. It's the beauty of uh, being 2,000 years later. And that is, is that buried inside of this prophecy of Jesus' coming was a prophecy of his second coming. And this is where the two are tied together and why Daniel's message is ultimately a beautiful Christmas message. Because the second coming is completely tied to the first coming. Because we are told here that this Jesus is going to be what? He's going to be a king who sits on the throne of his father David and that he's going to rule over the house of Jacob forever. But that didn't happen. 
Jesus was crucified. <laughs> he was never taken the throne of his father, David. And so that is still to come. And so as we celebrate Christmas, we are meant to have this eager expectation of Jesus' coming. We have to, to this eager expectation that our king is going to come back to reign over all this and make all that is wrong right in his kingdom. And that should be part of our Christmas celebration. You know, I often think the Jews have it right. You know, when the Jews celebrate Passover, one of the things they've done, if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, and I, I really do encourage them, is they leave an empty seat for Elijah because Elijah is to come before the Messiah comes. And then at the end of the Passover, one of the things they do is they send the youngest person in the house um, out to the door to check if Elijah has come. Well, we should do that. We should have an empty seat at the table for Jesus. <laughs> and you know what? We should at our Christmas parties, we should send the youngest person out and say, hey, go check. Is Jesus on his way back yet? <laughs> because we should have an eager expectation of Jesus' return. And it should become part of our celebrations as we remember it. Because it will stir in us that sense of promise that the Bible is meant to have. And that's what the last two sermons were about. An eager expectation for all that God is doing. Now Mary has taken this all in, but as you can imagine, she still has questions. And so verse 34 is that. She says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? There it is again. Now, we're not given the tone with which Mary asked this questions. But if you read all of the first chapter of Luke, we are left with the reality that her question was a clarifying question and not a question of doubt. And we're going to um, end today by seeing that this was actually, that Mary was actually going to display a tremendous amount of faith in the way she reacts to this news. And we have this because we have a counterexample. We have a counterexample in the person of Zechariah, which is not in our scripture today, but right above it in verses 18 to uh, 20, Zechariah who is Elizabeth's husband, uh, Mary's relative, he's also been given the news that his wife, who was barren, is going, to be, uh, is going to get pregnant with a child. And he questions it. And Gabriel's reaction to him is very different from Gabriel's reaction to, Jesus, I mean, to Mary. And so I just want to read that because it clarifies for us that Mary was not doubting, but simply asking to understand if you read uh, verse 18 to 20 of, of Luke, it says this, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, un unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Whoa, <laughs> that is quite a rebuke. And that is coming from a place of doubt because he didn't have faith. And so Gabriel is frankly offended. He's like, what do you think, I'm wasting my time here? He's like, I stand in the presence of God. I'm not like here to pray practical jokes on you. I'm delivering God's message to you. And it should have been received with that spirit. And Zechariah did not have that spirit that we find in Mary. And so clearly Zechariah's question came from a lack of faith. But look at the response to Mary when she says, how, how is this possible? I'm a virgin. In verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Gabriel's response to Mary's question is explanatory. It's a response to an honest question of a young girl who's just trying to understand how this can be possible. And he simply explains how God intends to make this happen. He says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
And therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. What did we say was the purpose of prophecy? We said it was first meant to edify. And here it is. Here is God's prophetic word edifying Mary as to how it's possible that she, a virgin, can become pregnant. And then we said what? We said the word of God is meant to encourage. Well, look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. She's like, you're not the only one experiencing a miracle. Elizabeth is there too. And so God encourages Mary. Hey, if God can do this for Elizabeth, he surely can do it for you. And then look at verse 37 as God brings her comfort. For nothing will be impossible with God. As Daniel told us last week, this is a church that believes in prophecy. And someone, or maybe even yourself, maybe you've had a prophetic word or had someone speak a prophetic word to you. Well, how do we test that spirit, which we are told to do, right? Any word that comes to us, we are meant to test. Well, the first test, as Daniel discussed, is to hold any prophecy up against the word of God, right? We have to seek confirmation and clarification in God's word that something told to us is of God because the spirit and the word will always agree. God is not going to contradict his own word. And so if somebody runs up to you and they say, hey, God told me you're supposed to divorce your wife, you've got to be like, whoa, <laughs> I'm not even going to receive that. That's crazy because that goes against and violates God's commandments, right? So God and the Spirit will agree. But also, another test of prophecy is to ask ourselves, is it edifying? Is it encouraging? And or is it comforting? First, does it enlighten us? Does it further reveal the nature and character of our God? Does it lift Him up and shed light on who God is, His Word, His works, because it should always do that. Is it encouraging? Does it increase your faith in God's goodness? Right? Is it a reminder of his love for you? Is it a reminder of his goodness to you and to those around you? Does it strengthen your hand and your resolve to be faithful and obedient to whatever God is calling you to? Because the word of God should always encourage us to do that. And lastly, is it comforting? Because no prophetic word should come to you that is not comforting. If you feel condemned by it, that's not God. The Bible tells us that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, will it bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Yes. The Word of God should do that. It should convict us. Everybody know the difference between condemnation and conviction? Condemnation makes you feel like you want to run from God. You just can't take it anymore. You've been browbeat so much. Conviction should bring you closer to God. You should get on your knees for repentance. That's how you can tell when the Spirit is convicting you because it draws you in into a deeper relationship. And that's what conviction is meant to do. And so it'll bring conviction, but it'll never bring condemnation. And so ask yourselves as we hear the word of God, is it something that edifies, encourages, and comforts us? Because that's what a prophetic word should do. And that's another means by which we can test the spirit. And now we're going to close with this. And this is a soft close, as Daniel said. It's going to go on for a little bit, but we are going to close it's a look at Mary as our example as to how do we respond to prophecy because that's the next thing, right? We've been given this prophetic word. We've tested it. We now know that it is from God. It edifies, it encourages, it comforts. But how do we respond to it? And we see that, uh, the example that Mary gives us here in verse 38. It says, and Mary said, 
This is her response to all the words of God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then note how it ends. And the angel departed from her. That's actually really important. We'll get to that in a second. But wow. You see, this is not just a mere acceptance of inevitability, right? Because God's word is inevitable. What God said is going to happen. And Mary knows that. But that's not her response. Her response is actually a powerful declaration of faith and a living example and testimony as to how we should receive all of God's word. It gives us a window into maybe why Mary was chosen for this amazing task of carrying the birth of our Savior. Because embedded in Mary's words is a heart of surrender that is built on a mountain of faith. It's the same heart we are told that we find in David in the Old Testament. David who is called a man after God's own heart, right? And we have to put ourselves in Mary's shoes to understand that because this was not 21st century Los Angeles. This was first century Palestine. And here you have a single woman who is a virgin on the verge of getting married, which would have been what she was looking forward to and would have been probably the biggest event in her life. And yet here she is prepared to lay everything on the line to accept what God has called her to do. See, Mary would have understood the risks of what was just prophesied to her in a way that none of us could possibly understand. She was raised in a society in which adultery was punishable by death. <laughs> right? The, the, the story of the, the uh, woman who's caught in adultery and is brought to Jesus to be stoned would not have been the first woman or person who was caught in adultery and brought out to be stoned. And what greater evidence is of there of uh, adultery than a pregnant woman who's not married? And so she was risking her very life by accepting this. She certainly couldn't have expected, let's say she was spared that, she certainly couldn't have expected that her future husband was going to believe some story about an angel and a Holy Spirit and all this kind of fantastical nonsense. It would have been a crazy story to tell anybody. And so more than likely, she's risking the loss of her fiancé and the life that she had been dreaming of and expecting in her marriage to Joseph. And we certainly have to expect that her, her family wasn't going to stand next to her, a woman who had brought shame upon the family. And so she was risking being ostracized from all of her social circles to accept what God here is telling her is going to happen. And surely Mary would have grasped this instantly, the potential consequences of the news she had just received. And yet, what is her response? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She had already asked how it was going to happen, but note she doesn't ask what then and why. Just let it be. She's comforted. She's not going to concern herself with the consequences. She is instead focused on being obedient. Whatever the cost, let it be to me according to your word. That is the heart of surrender. It is the pinnacle of a person who is living in the eager expectation of God's goodness. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the consequences of being obedient to the word is. It doesn't matter. I trust God. I trust God. And it's the same thing that we find in David, as I mentioned. A man who had committed adultery, had committed murder, who God himself said was too bloody to build his temple. And yet he was called after a man 
after God's own heart. Why? Why was David a man after God's own heart? Because he had the same spirit of surrender. Twice, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, his nemesis, the king that was chasing him so much so that he was living in caves. David didn't do it. And even after Saul was dead and the kingdoms had split, and David easily, the great general he was, could have easily conquered the northern kingdom Israel, didn't do it. He put himself in God's hands. He said, the consequences belong to the Lord. My job is to be faithful. Now, this isn't a call to do anything, right? Mary's going to do her part. She's going to take care of that baby. She's going to nurture it. She's going to make sure it's raised. David did his part. He was a mighty warrior. It was said of David that he had killed his tens thousands. And so we are to be faithful in the day-to-day, but our concern is to be with today, not with the consequences of that. To be faithful and obedient to God and let God deal with the consequences. And I know this is hard. We are results-oriented people. (laughs) And it's natural for us to want to manipulate things to our desired outcome, to think that we can just kind of tweak things here and tweak things there and, and, and make it happen, right? But the heart of surrender, like Mary, focuses not on the results, but on being faithful. It's so easy to want to dismiss God's word at times when it doesn't fit what we want. And to say to ourselves, ah, this book was written, you know, 2,000 years ago. It can't possibly speak to us today in our current circumstances. Or we might think of ourselves as the exceptions. Well, if God only knew what my life was like, he wouldn't make me do this thing. He wouldn't make me obedient to it. We question God on issues on things like divorce. You know, the divorce rate uh, in the church is the same as it is outside the church. We question God about things like paying taxes when Jesus is the one who said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's like, well, I'm just going to cut some corners here. You know, if God only understood how much they're taking. (laughs) We question God with dealing with anger. We make excuses for it, right? We all want to believe we have righteous anger. And I loved uh, what Daniel preached about two weeks ago in uh, 1 uh, 1 Thessalonians verse 4. What? Our sexuality, minding our own business, and working quietly with our hands. Those are challenges every day. They're real, everyday things that we need to learn to be obedient about. You know, you read in the paper these days about quiet quitting. People who just aren't giving their full time to the Lord. See, God doesn't like that. (laughs) God doesn't want to be reading about his church, quiet quitting. (laughs) What he wants from us is to be obedient to his call, to work diligently as if unto God and not unto man. Because that is the calling. And so it's, it's, often man's way to try to seek to manipulate either the the word of God to fit our circumstances or to remain in what I like to call the illusion of control, where we're going to do things our way, right? And it's easy to think about how Mary could have chosen a different path. Mary could have heard this message from the angel and like run after Joseph and say, hey, hey, Joe, why don't we get married today? (laughs) Why are we waiting, (laughs) right? Because that way she would have been in a marriage, pregnant, and all is good. (laughs) But that's not what Mary did. Mary surrendered herself to the consequences. And it, it seems like a ridiculous example, except for it's not. We have example after example in the Bible of people doing exactly that. Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting for God's promise of a son. And they said to themselves, well, let me go sleep with Hagar, and I'll have a son that way. 
Rebekah and Jacob conspired, even though God had promised that the younger would serve the older, they conspired to have Isaac bless Jacob instead of Esau because they wanted to manipulate things, even God's promises, which is shameful, to get things done their way. And we have to be careful not to be guilty of the same thing. So many people reject the gospel for exactly the same reason because they aren't prepared to surrender the control of their lives to the Lord. Rob was sharing about someone he spoke to. Uh, you know, I won't name names, but he was just sharing the gospel with them. And their answer is, well, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but not Lord. Yeah! <laughs> One can't be separated from the other. <laughs> Jesus did not come to be just Savior, but our Lord. And we have to have this, this heart that Mary had. You know, a heart of surrender. And that begins with salvation itself. And so, where did this come from? Because, as I said, the angel, as I mentioned, it's really departed. The angel drops this message and he leaves. He doesn't tell Mary what's coming. He doesn't give her any assurance that she's not going to be stoned to death, that her husband isn't going to leave her, that her family isn't going to ostracize her. And she doesn't even ask. What is Mary relying on that allows her to surrender as she does to the will of the Lord? God's nature and his character, his history of goodness to the nation of Israel. She knew her God. That's it. That's it. And that's what's going to cause us to have this heart of surrender is when we know our God when we have experienced his goodness, when we read it in his word and can believe that what God has done for others, he will do for us. And so she accepts it because with it came the promise that she would have the privilege of delivering the Savior of the world. And we, when we are obedient, can rely on the promise that this Savior has delivered us and brought us into salvation and a right relationship with God. And Mary shows us the way, a surrendered heart living through faithful obedience to God's word in eager expectation of whatever might come because we trust that God is good. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, for most people in this room, that can be summed up in an, a Christian expression that many of you, I'm sure, have heard. Let go and let God. <laughs> And it can seem flippant, but it's real. we got to learn with the things in our lives to just let go and let God. And if that's you today, if you're in circumstances that you just can't let go of, that you're trying to hold on to and figure out how you're going to fix it yourself, I'm going to encourage you on the side to go get some prayer. Let's pray over those circumstances. Not that God will make it work out the way that you want it to, but that we will have the heart of surrender that Mary had to be able to trust that whatever the outcome it's for our good and for God's glory. And that he will work it to his will, not our will. And so I encourage you to get prayer. But there may be some of you in this room that have never made that first surrender, that have never made Jesus Lord. Maybe you've played around with God as Savior because we all want the goodies of salvation. But we need to surrender to God as Lord. The Bible tells us that if we will confess him as Lord and that we will recognize uh, that his resurrection, that God raised him from the dead as proof, bringing him back to life, that we can have second life too, that we will be saved. 
And if you've never made that first surrender, I'm going to encourage you to do that today. And if there's anybody here, just ask you all before we pray, just lift your hands. I want to pray for you now and give you that opportunity to make that surrender. Amen. For the rest of you, we want to walk out of here today with hearts of surrender that will let go and let God because he's in control anyway. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Father, we thank you that your promise is for today. And uh, and that means that we may not know what tomorrow holds, but we can take comfort in knowing that you are good and you are sufficient for every cause and for every circumstance. Father, help us to learn from Mary to have hearts of surrender that would give to you all of our future, to know that whatever may come, you have promised to not leave us or forsake us, that you will walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, and that you are sufficient for us in every cause. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.